marvelous. One of the points she makes is that life has always been technological. In other words, the technology is not a deviation from what life has come up with in order to persist. Where we get our food from is central to thinking about things like climate change as well as the emergence of zoonotic disease. And so as hopefully we pass out of the moment of intensity with the pandemic and we come out of the pandemic as almost a portal for rethinking our relationships to the non-human world. Hello, I'm Bruce Clark. I teach literature and science at Texas Tech University. My most recent book is Gaian Systems, Lynn Margulis, Neo-Cybernetics, and the End of the Anthropocene. This project really started in earnest when I met Lynn Margulis in 2005, and she very quickly dispelled my lingering skepticism about Gaia as a scientific topic. Uh, Lynn had been working on Gaia really from the earliest uh, articulation of the concept, beginning her collaboration with James Lovelock back in the early 1970s. And as a result of my getting to know Lynn, I came into possession of her correspondence with Lovelock, and that gave me some pretty deep insights into how this scientific collaboration developed and how the concept of Gaia developed uh, as a conversation between Lovelock and Margulis. So as I began to familiarize myself with the science, I began to write papers uh, and publish on it and keep my eye out for Gaia scholarship and saw that the idea had really begun to take hold in the 21st century among a major set of theorists whose work I respected. The book itself is uh, in large part uh, grounded in a history of the unfolding of Gaia as a scientific idea and as more broadly as a as a figure of thought, uh, it, just in general discussion about planetary affairs. So I look at Lovelock and Margulis's own developing discourse of Gaia. I look at the work of Bruno Latour, Isabel Stengers, Donna Haraway in popularizing Gaia really for the academic community. I look at the background of what I call the systems counterculture, which is the whole earth catalog, which is then succeeded by Coevolution Quarterly. And this was really the launching pad of an article published in 1975 in Coevolution Quarterly, lead authored by Margulis, was the launching pad for the, the reception of Gaia by the environmental counterculture here in the States. And I proceed from there to kind of work the guy idea in terms of contemporary science fiction and the history of cybernetic ideas that it was bound up with by the science that Lovelock and Margulis were doing in the way they articulated that science. And I bring the story through pretty much to the contemporary moment with the onset of the Anthropocene and, and looking at how Gaia discourse, I think, is a, in many ways a preferable alternative discourse to a lot of the way the Anthropocene has been spoken about. That's a very large sketch of the, the breadth of my book, Gaia Systems. Uh, Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit about 
the probiotic planet. Hello, my name is Jamie Lorimer. I'm a geographer based at the University of Oxford uh, in the UK, and I teach environmental geography, so broadly interested in human-environment relations. Uh, my second book, uh, Probiotic Planet, Using Life to Manage Life, argues that there's a probiotic turn underway in how life is being managed across a range of different policy domains and across different uh, scales of ecological thinking. And by probiotic turn, I'm looking at uh, systematic efforts to use life, to manage life, to tackle a range of problems that are associated with the excessive application of antibiotic modes of managing life. So if you like, the predominant way, I argue, of managing life in the Anthropocene has been about the systematic rationalization, simplification, control of ecological systems, uh, which has led to a set of crises within the functionings of those systems. And that could be anything from uh, crises within uh, the human microbiome and the rise of a range of autoimmune diseases to crises in uh, resource management in um, landscape scale around biodiversity loss, around dramatic forest fires, around extreme flooding events, right up to uh, crises on a planetary scale that we see associated with uh, climate change and, and global warming. Uh, so we, these are the kind of blowbacks to antibiotic modes of managing life. Uh, a probiotic approach looks at how you could manage the intensities of those systems to restore some desired mode of functioning uh, within them to deliver uh, services and, and properties. And, and in particular, it often involves the use of keystone species, so particular species that have disproportionate agency within their ecologies to restore functions and services. And I focus in particular on uh, a body of uh, policy and science that's known as rewilding in nature conservation, uh, in which conservationists have shifted somewhat from a focus on managing uh, or preventing the extinction of rare species towards restoring uh, functions and services within ecologies, so bringing back wolves, bringing back beavers, uh, restoring grazing regimes, with the idea that these could deliver desired functions and services within a contemporary ecology. So that's, that's one example. And the other example I look at is uh, a group of scientists and citizens who are experimenting on their personal microbiome, so on the bacteria and fungi that make up the human body, uh, in the interest of tackling a range of autoimmune allergic diseases, and in particular a group who are taking helminths. So helminths are a species of human worm, often called parasitic worms. And the argument is that we co-evolved with these helminths. You can have too many helminths in situations of poor sanitation, but in the absence of helminths, the human microbiome goes into a situation of dysbiosis. And as a consequence, the human immune system turns against itself. And so these folk are uh, taking worms, they're conducting clinical trials in these worms to look at what they could do to restore desired functions and services. So, so the book looks across these examples on different scales, uh, and it, it makes a case that there's something common and interesting going on in terms of how life is being conceived and managed across these different, uh, different domains. And then it pivots in the second half to a, a kind of critical mapping of the different ways in which one could go probiotic. It sketches out a very unequal geography to where in the world uh, one is able to go probiotic, if you like. That uh, There's a very partial geography uh, as to who has sufficient control over life around them that they can uh, conduct these controlled experiments in, in restoration. Uh, it looks at the different ways in which life is being imagined uh, largely as a deliverer of functions and services. Life is being put to work uh, with uh, fairly exploitative consequences for the life forms that have been put to work to deliver 
probiotic properties. Uh, it looks at the different forms of value that get caught up in a, in a kind of uh, capitalist model of the probiotic turn uh, and to whom uh, value accrues when life gets commodified in that way. And ultimately aims to offer this color-coded spectrum of different ways of going probiotic. So it's sort of claiming that there's a significant historical event underway, uh, but what it implies for the future of the management of life is open, if you like, and there are different trajectories uh, emerging in the present. Well, I'm very interested in hearing you speak to the, the primary differences the probiotic orientation makes relative to other more traditional research programs. For instance, you borrow a term from other writers to describe the current probiotic era as post-Pasteurian, in that we've been decisively moving away from the antibiotic world ushered in by Pasteur's identification of bacterial pathogens and infections. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on what we could call the Pasteurian planet, the one we're leaving behind, that subsequent long century of demonization of microbes as morbid rather than beneficent in their main effects, and on what it means to have gained today's perspective on the broadly mutualistic nature of most symbioses between microbes and their macroscopic hosts? That's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I take the concepts of the post-Pasteurian from the anthropologist Heather Paxson, who studied the, uh, a group of uh, people making raw milk cheese on the northeast of the, of the U.S. And uh, Paxson's developing an analysis offered by, by Bruno Latour if you like, of the ways in which Pasteur, who's a great figure in, in, in French microbiology, but also a great figure in modern hygiene, produced this body of science, uh, which through its application led to this kind of blunderbuss approach to managing our, our relationships with, with the microbial world. There was a, a kind of indexing of hygiene to the absence of, of microbes. And if we extend that out to think about the ways in which life has been conceived and managed not just within the human body or within the kitchen, uh, but to, to the wider countryside, let's say. There was a tendency, and still is, uh, in many forms of uh, pest control, uh, in the use of pesticides in, in, in agriculture, uh, towards the wholesale eradication of, of life that is not held to be useful. So whether that's insects or soil microbes, everything is sort of bundled into this bracket of redundant life that we could we can do without and life gets rationalized and, and streamlined and, and the argument that you get from immunologists and, and ecologists is that this absence creates the conditions for particularly virulent uh, sometimes uh, antibiotic resistant sort of pests and, and problematic species to emerge so you have this blowback particularly virulent uh, pathogenic microbes that come to the fore and what emerges particularly in the microbiome with the advent of next generation sequencing technologies, uh, which allow scientists to map out the full diversity of life in the microbiome. During past years time, you can only really know a microbe was there if you could, if you could culture it. Uh, and there's a very small subset of microbes that can be cultured in laboratory settings. Genetic approach gives us this great picture of the diversity of life that characterizes any microbial setting and a sense that a great deal of that life is, is harmless, um, but also a subset of that life can be beneficial, can be mutualistic, can lead to desirable relations that, that enable the human body to, to function in the way that we expect it to. So that's the kind of post-Pasteurian idea. It's a sort of much more nuanced, much more calibrated application of ways of knowing and, and managing life. There's a, a Dutch philosopher, Joseph Kulets, who describes 
a similar shift in uh, the management of agricultural and conservation landscapes as the controlled decontrolling of ecological controls. There's this kind of nuanced application of, of an ecologized form of, of science, still ultimately towards uh, the delivery of services that are useful for people. It's not a kind of rejection of the benefits of modern antibiotic approaches. It's just a sort of nuanced recalibration to deliver different functions and, and services. So yeah, so I mean, maybe I could reciprocate Bruce with a with a question a question for you. I mean, I guess it, it, one of the common strands that runs across our books is is trying to make sense of the enthusiasm for Gaian thinking now. And you trace this long history to place the contemporary enthusiasm in a much deeper history. But if you had to sort of characterize why this conjunction of ideas around the Holobiont, the Anthropocene, and Gaia have come to the fore in the contemporary present, why, why would that be? Do you think? That is a great question. You're right. I take the discussion back and kind of trace it forward. And, and one notes in the, the first several decades of the discussion of Gaia, it's, it's really struggling with various unreceptive areas of, of mainstream science to establish itself as an idea. But both Lovelock and Margulis are, are steadfast in their development and promotion of the idea. There's a kind of unusual radiation, you could say, of Gaian ideas coming out of science, but being received by a wider public that is captivated in various ways by what they take Gaia to represent as a kind of reconnection to uh, a planetary horizon. Now, in, in more recent times, however, there's a, a kind of convergence of the planetary concern as articulated through what has now been developed as Gaia theory, which has been brought into a kind of normalization of its bona fides as as an idea that's being tested and put to various evidentiary challenges, as at the same time it's being expanded as a framework for social thought. Uh, so it, it enters the discourse of environmentalism. Lovelock is gradually, as I observe it, being lionized uh, as a kind of a green guru uh, in England specifically, not, not so much in America. But in America, Donna Haraway establishes a relationship. There's a file of letters that I've seen uh, exchanged between her and Margulis. Uh, and, and Margulis is, in a way, a more radical environmental thinker uh, than Lovelock. Uh, so I think her, uh, and of course, her own science has to do with championing the idea of symbiosis, not as a marginal phenomenon within the biosphere, but in fact is an absolutely central dynamic of evolutionary persistence of life through the eons. And just as a matter of fact, that life is amazingly uh, interconnected at all levels and across all kingdoms as just part of its way of doing the business of living on this planet. Lovelock continues to be the more sort of scientifically engaged uh, advocate, uh, has a body of co-workers that gather around him. Margulis's ideas connect very deeply with Donna Haraway's feminist science studies. 
And at a certain point, um, these ideas are gathered in by, by the conversation that Isabel Stengers, the Belgian philosopher, is having with Bruno Latour, the premier anthropological, uh, sociological thinker of science and technology uh, in the International Theory Academy. And so they gradually start uh, talking Gaia. There's there's a kind of steady history, not exactly of normalization of Gaia, which still has a, still kind of an edgy concept for many people. And yet then you add the sort of Anthropocene dilemma about how we bring our understanding around. In other words, it's not just that life is a geological force, which used to be a kind of radical Gaian idea, but human life uh, is now understood as having amounted to something like a geological force. Uh, the question then is, you know, are we are we in any position to control Gaia or to manage Gaia? That's a problematic assertion, although that's one of the main debates now. As I encountered your work, this was the framing that you found uh, that, that had kind of arrived as you were doing the work for Probiotic Planet and, and created a framework that, that was really efficient, uh, sort of intellectually efficient for positioning the, the wider philosophical and social theoretical aspects uh, of your work in probiotic planet, one of the I guess the challenges for me as somebody trained in science studies and in, in a sort of uh, as, as, a, as a ultimately as a social scientist is is to try and make sense of the epistemic alliances one might make with scientists that I write about, and I guess it's interesting following the intellectual trajectories of some of those figures that you've just mentioned, so particularly Bruno Latour. Uh, and Donna Haraway, who you know, I encountered their writings in the 1980s and the 1990s, where there was a, a degree of skepticism, if you like, about how, as anthropologists, they might make alliances with science to tell stories about the social and, and that sort of social construction of scientific knowledge tradition, uh, which was, I guess, particularly critical of modes of biological science that they saw naturalizing kind of Western capitalistic, individualistic, patriarchal idea of, of the subject and of the organization of society that they they found written into particular stories of creation or particular ways in which you know, animals were arranged in, in natural history museums. And and I guess you know what what's interesting for me, you know, there's various points, particularly for Latour, where he has a kind of crisis in that uh, understanding of his role as a critic, particularly in the light of uh, climate change and this concern that He's seeing climate deniers using some of the very techniques that he and his co-writers pioneered to think skeptically about the position of, of science and society. And, and there's this kind of journey of discovery that takes him to Lovelock, one feels. And, and, and um, I think Haraway, it's less clear cut. There's a kind of epiphany. She's always had this you know, quite sort of healthy skepticism, but also a deep scientific understanding, I feel, of, of Margulis and others. But in Symbiogenesis, in a model of Earth system science that comes from Gaia, they both seem to find a much more palatable political ontology, if you like, in which human society is premised on mutualistic relations uh, and at which, at, on a foundational level, there's a much more ecological set of uh, preconditions for how life should be, should be organized. And so there's a, 
there's a sense that a kind of Gaian story comes along at the right time um, in order to justify a kind of green liberal uh, vision of the future. So, so I guess my question for you is, you know, is that is that just too cynical to read it in that way as a sociologist of science, uh, or is there something else going on that that makes this really interesting ferment of ideas where anthropologists, philosophers, immunologists, uh, earth system scientists are all kind of thinking along similar lines and forming this kind of common epistemic commitment to a particular way of knowing about the world? I don't think that sounds overly cynical. I mean, one one is well advised to, to be on one's intellectual guard regarding such enthusiasms. In my own case, I... I, I, I tell the story at the beginning of my book of, of, of sort of the overcoming of, of my skepticism uh, with regard to Gaia. But on the other hand, I also trace how Margulis, uh, and this is due to her having uh, encountered Francisco Varela uh, in a very significant way in the 1980s uh, in, in relation to a kind of private symposium called the Lindisfarne Association. But the outcome of that was that Lynn encountered a vigorous discourse that was grounded in the systems counterculture, as I call it, of uh, second-order cybernetics and the concept of autopoiesis uh, as a theory of the integrity and maintenance and self-production of the living self enters into her her articulation of Gaia. But what comes along with that theory is also a kind of epistemological constructivism. So, for instance, Matron and Varela will say that uh, a living system uh, is cognitive from the get-go, that cells are cognitive systems, and as life ramps up from its cellular foundations, that life brings forth its own world. And that and, a, and that's a kind of uh, shorthand formulation of the Gaia hypothesis, that life controls its environment. That's the, the radical version, but at least that, that life shapes its environment is not just the sort of passive recipient of geological dynamics to which it's always adapting itself. The problem of constructivism is a complex one. And I think you're correct to consider the the social constructivism that uh, Latour in particular feels he he has to pull away from. That's sort of one line, uh, but the epistemological uh, constructivism grounded in in autopoietic systems theory is a is a separate dynamic, and but what it means for Gaia is that that I mean that Gaia is always kind of straddling this dual identity between uh, sort of contested scientific hypothesis on the one hand, but on the other hand, a way of shaping one's vision of the world. <laughs> uh, that Gaia is a construction, uh, and that's is to be brought forth in whatever manner is sort of conducive to one's environmental uh, concerns. So it, it's an adaptable uh, meta-concept at, at that level. I was thinking about your your presentation of, of Gaia, and I pulled a quote out from your 
introductory chapter uh, where you say uh, what you find in the leading accounts of Gaia is, in your own words, quote, a palatable, liberal and ecological political ontology for rematerializing theory after the idealist excesses of the scientific turn. So I take it that's the that's the social constructionism that became problematic for Latour. Uh, at the same time, you continue, it provides common epistemic ground for rebuilding alliances with the natural sciences after the science wars and in face of rising science denialism, unquote. So it seemed to me that you come upon Gaian thinking as a ground for another sort of restoration, uh, a theoretical remediation that you align with what's called the new materialism, but it amounts to a regrounding in biological and ecological substance that compensates for the impasses of post-structuralism. So d- does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's a fair reading of what I was trying to take for them with, with a degree of kind of ambivalence as to uh, both my kind of qualifications as a social scientist to judge the credibility of the work that was being offered to me, uh, but also a, a sort of degree of open-endedness that seems to be emerging as to quite what forms of environmental politics gets uh, created out of those starting points, if you like. Uh, I mean, this sort of picks up on some nice common themes that, that we both have or common interests we have in discussions around the Anthropocene and, and the ways in which Earth system science has been powered up by discussions about the Anthropocene to begin to be charged with responsibility for planetary salvation, if you like, this kind of newfound interest, particularly in, in Europe, but I'm sure it's the same you know, in, in the US with the hopeful change of leadership around you know, making climate change a, a clear and important political priority and around um, you know, what we call here net, net zero or what used to be called geoengineering, though that term is, is not as palatable as it used to be, but an idea that you know, on the basis of this systems thinking, there are ways of knowing, predicting, managing and intervening into systems such that uh, desirable futures can be secured. There are several different desirable futures that could be secured uh, that would favor some over others. So, so there's, there's a kind of non-deterministic politics that comes out of that ontology that I'm interested in. But maybe I could pull you towards where you're, I think, ending in the book. If, if the last three chapters are beginning to grapple with questions of planetary thinking in the present, astrobiology, and this idea of of immunity, particularly the kind of uh, post-Esposito discussions of the biopolitics of immunity, where this sort of Gaian thinking leaves us in discussions about climate change. And maybe I could reciprocate by reading a quote, which is the final couple of sentences from chapter eight, in which you say, Gaia endows life on Earth with temporary immunity from cosmic extinction. It appears that anthropogenic climate change will be another test of Gaia, it is unclear as yet whether we humans will still be around to see its regulatory functions reset themselves in light of the altered conditions. And, and I guess you're kind of, you're not committing to a, to a politics around geoengineering, but, but, but where do you find Gaia leaves us in that contemporary discussion about, about climate change and, and the political response? It, it's certainly open-ended. I, I don't take from Gaia any kind of 
positive, sort of specific guidance uh, for uh, a politics. I, I think I would align with Stenger's overall uh, sense of uh, that we've got to learn to live with Gaia <laughs> for all the possible interventions that we might find ourselves uh, contemplating, we need to tread very, very carefully. I, I tend to see Gaia as a reminder that in ultimate planetary matters, we're not really in charge <laughs> of the maintenance of the viability of the planet. And that's a, a, a mission uh, we can't, I don't think we're right to think that we could uh, take upon ourselves. It's really, so I think of it more in terms of a strategic reintegration that may well call for all kinds of thoughtful systemic probes, test runs with regard to mitigation, uh, ecosystem restoration. Uh, if And if it could back up just a bit, it was just as I was having an opportunity to be with Lynn uh, in the last couple of years of her life at various meetings uh, to get to know her way of thinking. Uh, the Anthropocene as an idea was coming in just around this time, you know, somewhere between 2006, 2011, the year Lynn dies. The Anthropocene is coming on as an idea. And of course, one is one has to engage with it one way or another. But I just kept kept thinking to myself, especially after Lynn died, uh, what would Lynn say? <laughs> what would Lynn say about the Anthropocene? And, and I think the answer is clear. She would have just kind of uh, uttered some expletive or another and say, a, a human, all too human arrogation to itself of, of powers that it doesn't possess. I continue to be skeptical about, especially about the eco-modernist vision of the Anthropocene in which geoengineering was uh, a major part of that conversation. Oh, well, we'll just put the techno fix in for what's ailing the planet and, uh, and, and trust us, we, we got this thing. Uh, and, and I think I transmit what would have been, I'm, I'm most certain, Margulis's extreme skepticism of, about that. I mean, maybe, Bruce, I could just come in there. The other touchstone in your account you know, is, is Lovelock, I guess. And, um, but, but Lovelock's latest book has quite a different take. I, I can't remember if he uses the word the Anthropocene uh, explicitly, but he talks about the Novocene, doesn't he? And, and, and he has this you know, future which is dominated by, perhaps taken over by artificial intelligence, by by machines, um, which isn't necessarily eco-modernist, but definitely has a kind of techno-optimist uh, narrative to it. There's a central place for, 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 for technology uh, in that future. Do you think they'd have differed, the two of them, in terms of what they made of the Anthropocene? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I imagine Lynn is rolling over in her grave looking at Lovelock's Novocene. <laughs> it came out just as I was finishing up. In fact, my manuscript was done, but when the Novocene came out, I felt I had to deal with it. Thankfully, Minnesota uh, gave me uh, a little time to incorporate a little bit more into my text. One thing I do in my book is tease apart 
uh, Lovelock science and Margulis's science, because uh, as they develop, they really, they take different paths. And Novacine makes that perfectly clear that Lovelock is a essentially a, a first order cybernetician. He's a control theorist uh, and, and an engineer. Uh, and he likes to present himself in that guy. So there's this, this abiding optimism that we can invent our way out. And, and pretty soon the AIs are going to take over for us anyways. Uh, and they'll just, uh, and they'll work out the solutions. But, but what gets sacrificed in that vision of the Novacine as the successor to the Anthropocene, right? Because it's only the Anthropocene while the human is in putative control of the planet. Uh, but once the AIs take control of the human, uh, they'll take control of the planet, and that will be the Novocene. And that's really the death of Gaia. Uh, he kind of fudges it because he says, well, at the beginning, the machines will need to keep the planet cool, uh, and that's what Gaia does. And so they'll, they'll work with Gaia for their own viability. Uh, but a point will come when they'll just refashion the biosphere into a post-biotic formation. And at that point, there'll be no more use for Gaia. I can't go there with him. <laughs> just thinking through that. I mean, because I guess there's a long history of the concept of Gaia being picked up by, co-opted by a kind of deep ecology movement that was you know, deeply ambivalent about technology and deeply ambivalent about modern society and deeply ambivalent about urbanism and, and, and capitalism. And is this Lovelock sort of parting snipe at his deep ecology sort of fan base that, you know, that, that sort of never mis misconstrued his ideas or, or is there something else going on there? That's a great question. I'm not sure that I know the answer to it, although it would not be unlike uh, the mischievous James Lovelock, who, whom Lynn uh, characterized in precisely that way as part of what she loved about him was he was a, he was a mischievous spirit. So I, I'm not sure what agendas uh, might have been there. But uh, what I propose in my book is that in this matter, let's look at Margulis. She was deeply ecological, but she was not a, a kind of Luddite variation of, uh, of deep ecology. She was fine with the technosphere, but she saw the ultimate parameters of the technosphere as the biosphere, that the technosphere does not get out from under <laughs> the foundation of its possibility within the affordances of the biosphere. In other words, that Gaia remains the, the bottom line, uh, planetary viability of life uh, writ large uh, remains the bottom line for human possibility. Uh, she was also happy to think astrobiologically about the potential to take life away from Earth to, to head out into the universe. But if that was going to happen, we would have to take Gaia with us. We would have to truly master the, the wicked problems of creating artificial self-sustaining ecologies. Uh, but, and, and who's to say we couldn't crack that problem, but, but, but that's what it would take. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting. This this seems to be this, you know, I guess in contrast to the thinkers and the philosophical movement that you were describing, which has this fairly consistent epistemic commitment to to science and and to reason in its different guises. Within the probiotic turn, there is there's a sort of retrospective uh, nostalgia, if you like, for some point in the past uh, before the fall, before some kind of antibiotic excess creeps in and blowback happens and order has to be reset. Uh, and that is both a kind of technological problem, but it's also a kind of epistemic come spiritual problem that, that on the margins of the probiotic turn and where it starts to bleed into what Heather Paxson calls the kind of anti-pasturian movement is various forms of deep green thinking that are sometimes very darkly towards kind of fascistic thinking uh, that holds some kind of judgment in blowback that this is the warning to humans that we need to reset to return uh, and then there's a range of benchmarks that are called upon that we might return to so you know, one popular iteration is a kind of paleo version um, that is both a kind of lifestyle fad as well as a much more profound philosophical uh, shift particularly in, in North America and then there's a kind of pastoral inclination of that that takes the full you know slightly you know not quite so far back uh, but which there are sort of various forms of low intensity subsistence technologies that, that that are acceptable and those are you know those are kind of you know popular culture versions of it and then those are squared off against a uh, eco-modernist idea that, that can really you know machines can be harnessed to know the fundamental operations of systems operations whether that's within the human body whether that's in the countryside or whether that's in the planet at large and they can be optimized to deliver bright green futures. And, and those are the versions of the probiotic which don't have these retrospective temporalities towards the past. But I guess what gets folded into that are these very complicated uh, ideas about the limits of science and the merits of some kind of either religious or spiritualist uh, way of knowing that comes out of holistic thinking. So maybe to sort of turn this back to you, I mean, what, what were the limits to science in some of these historical events? I mean, some of the places that they gathered at you know, had significance well beyond them as just places to, to, to be at home at Lindisfarne, for example. I mean, how, how does this kind of rub up against New Age thinking through the 20th century um, that, that some of these characters were, were sort of on the margins of? The thing about the, the Lindisfarne sensibility was purposefully uh, heterogeneous, and it was right up alongside the uh, the kind of whole earth sensibility as that was constituted by Stuart Brand, uh, who was providing publications, especially in Coevolution Quarterly, which is a, a truly amazing body of documentation for uh, radical environmentalist thinking in the 1970s. But the thing about that venue was that it was not technophobic, quite the opposite. Uh, Brand was uh, uh, a technophile, and, and, and that's kind of obvious in the way that he's aligned himself in, in more recent decades with the eco-modernists. So he was always kind of eco-modernist, uh, while at the same time, I, I love your phrase of bright green. I, I would say he was always not bright green as opposed to deep green. He lent his promotional efforts to uh, O'Neill's uh, space colonies, uh, which was a huge vote. 
in the 70s uh, that Timothy Leary jumped on that on that bandwagon as well as he was serving his sentence uh, that we could sort of tap off human populations and put them in a high orbit uh, around the earth in these massive uh, technological constructions in which we would create artificial ecologies. In one of the chapters of my book, I talk about how William Gibson's Neuromancer was, in fact, just took that, all the design specs that had been developed uh, with regard to this project and ran a cyberpunk number on them. But when you're in high orbit in the latter part of the story world of Neuromancer, you're exactly in O'Neill's space colonies. Well, Margulis, she wasn't a major promoter of that, but what intrigued her was that that would be a test of Gaia. One of the tests of Gaia would be, can you, can you reproduce it? And, and it's not that you're just kind of, that, that you'll just run the technology over that problem, but you're really going to have to cooperate with, you have to let Gaia tell you how you're going to solve that problem of taking Gaia along with you if you leave the earth and, and want to stay alive. The, the Gaian thinkers that I engage with are, are really not uh, in the deep ecological veins of turning back from the technological developments of the 20th century. Uh, Margulis, one of the points she makes is that life has always been technological. In other words, the technology is not a deviation from what life has come up with in order to persist. That life has, uh, as it's evolved, has find ways to incorporate its environment into its own functioning. Uh, just at the base level of that, uh, for instance, calcium was a waste product of at an earlier stage of the biosphere that it was excreted from cells uh, where, uh, because it, it, if it built up, it would, it would poison, poison the metabolism. But, but what gradually happened was the ambient calcium that was then put into the environment was reincorporated as bones <laughs> and teeth. <laughs> and, and, uh, so she, she had a, a, I'd say a deep evolutionary vision of the interrelation of the biosphere and what we call the technosphere. I mean, I guess the other great epistemic space that's opened up by these conversations and that you explore really richly in your book, and which chimes with a, with a clearly a shared interest that we have in science fiction, is, is the way that it opens space for speculation, if you like, this sort of speculative fiction that is you know, very much in vogue now, certainly in, in the writings of of Donna Haraway and the conversations that people like Haraway have clearly had with Ursula Le Guin and Kim Stanley Robinson and others. And, um, you know, in the book, you nicely use passages from contemporary and sort of classic science fiction to illustrate some of this thinking. Maybe you could say a bit about the role that science fiction plays in your own scholarship and the ways in which you were mobilizing science fiction authors as thinkers uh, within Guyan systems. One thing that Catherine Hale's great work that kind of got me going as a, a literature and science scholar uh, introduced me to not just uh, writers like Stanislav Lem, but was sort of my first contact with information theory and cybernetics 
and then eventually second order cybernetics or which I just abbreviate as neo-cybernetics. So major figures on uh, uh, coming out of the Macy conferences on cybernetics, including Heinz von Furster, but also the great Gregory Bateson, who was basically the presiding spirit of uh, Stuart Brand's green thinking of the 1970s from Bateson's book, uh, Steps to an Ecology of Mind. Uh, So how I've taught literature and science, just as a practical matter, uh, in the university is uh, with science fiction, uh, just tease up the themes uh, that much more directly. And so at a certain point, I was reading Bateson, and I went back and read Dune, uh, which is from the mid-60s. And I had read that back in my college days uh, many decades ago. So a while back, I, I, I picked it up again. I was really curious to see if it held up. And I thought it held up uh, really well. And what that reminded me was that that novel was suffused with ecosystem ecology. And that's kind of how the Fremen on the desert planet were making a life for themselves because they had these, uh, there was this sort of interplay between these uh, uh, ecological scientists who came into the indigenous planet of Dune and then helped the the native Fremen population uh, uh, begin to dream about creating a verdant world uh, by mastering uh, the various planetary systems to their benefit. So I, I do a brief riff on that uh, in the book by way of establishing the milieu, the, the kind of popular systems thinking that was percolating up in the 1960s that then kind of becomes full-blown in the Whole Earth Catalog which always begins with a section called Understanding Whole Systems. So there's your systems counterculture uh, emerging from a kind of uh, convergence of uh, cybernetic uh, systems thinking, uh, ecological systems thinking, and the sense that uh, these paradigms uh, were planetary in scope. Uh, But then fast forward 15 years and you're in the world of neuromancer, which is clearly a, a cybernetic development, but, but now we're into the digital moment. <laughs> uh, so you've got a, a virtual world uh, that has now emerged. And so that's the kind of mainstream cyber development that is more often what people focus on. Once the digital world arrives at its ability to create a kind of parallel virtual reality, then you're kind of on the mainstream to our world now, which is kind of caught uh, between the problematics of its biotic viability and the utopian Vista, which uh, is now getting a little tarnished of what might be possible. My overall effort then was to recover what was kind of thrown into shadow by the rise of the 80s and 90s uh, world of digitality, Uh, because what we left behind was autopoietic systems theory and green cybernetics. And, And that's the incubator of 
the guy and ideas that I think are most durable. Great. I mean, I wonder, seeing as it's so timely and significant uh, and overwhelming to think a little bit in the context of COVID and the pandemic, which in some ways is like living in a science fiction future that's been relayed to us in different ways, but now it's here and every day. And I guess thinking through what our two books have to say, if anything, about about the present. Um, you know, I finished the manuscript for The Probiotic Planet in uh, November 2019, so just before everything began. And, you know, here was a book that was going to celebrate the wonders of the microbiome and, and we should love our, love our microbes. And, and fortunately, Minnesota allowed me to write a preface for the book in April. So we were sort of, at least in the UK, in the middle of the first wave. And, you know, on the one hand, what we've seen is this dramatic amplification of antibiotic ways of managing life. You know, we are ever encouraged to keep distance from each other, to put up boundaries that enforce you know, degrees of, of immunity and all sorts of you know, mundane hand washing and all the rest of it. Uh, but also a sense that the genesis of the, of the virus comes from within the hotspots and intensities of antibiotic ways of, of organizing commerce and trade and potentially from within hotspots of intensive agricultural food production. Uh, so there's a, there's a sort of, there's an unfolding story both about the necessity of antibiotic interventions, the vaccine that looks like it may be, you know, what secures the return to some semblance of normality. There's also this diagnosis of the pathological uh, nature of some forms of modern life that creates these super virulent entities and allows them to spread around the world. And certainly there was a story emerging from some strands of environmentalism that the pandemic was Gaia's revenge, uh, some kind of dystopian idea that this is something that humans have brought upon themselves. And that's clearly not where you're going with your argument. But, but, but looking at the contemporary situation from the perspective of, of a Gaian thinker, I mean, what, if anything, does your analysis give us to making sense of of COVID and the political response to it that we're seeing playing out around us. Sort of the micropolitics are, are, I mean, we have no choice but to fall back on the vaccine developers. A probiotic solution uh, at the microbiome level does, does not seem to offer itself immediately. But panning back a bit, uh, I think it's clear that, uh, as many people have been pointing out, the uh, it's it's deforestation. It's the encroachment, uh, the the unrestrained encroachment of shall we just say the technosphere or just the realm of human building has crushed up against the 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 remaining habitat of of the wilder parts of the planet or the the as yet undeveloped parts of the planet. So that zoonotic diseases. Uh, the opportunity of the rare but real uh, pathogenic actors has, I mean, we've flushed them out uh, by the way we're behaving on this planet. Now, I'm not a guy as revenge person at all. I mean, that's, that's, of course, the title of one of Lovelock's more heated interventions. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I agree completely with the way that you purvey Stinger's verdict. Uh, I mean, Gaia doesn't want anything from us one way or another. But at the same time, I was thinking how 
but people just don't understand the difference between viruses and bacteria, for instance. There's amazing scientific work now on mutualistic viruses that that in fact we we're we're swimming in the virus sphere all the time and what we're learning is it's really just like the the microcosm of bacterial life we swim in that all the time and 99.9 times out of 100 it's it's not pathogenic it's just part of the the web of life in which we are completely and inextricably enmeshed Uh, But we have a dysbiotic civilization at the moment that just uh, especially and deforestation is kind of the most glaring manifestation of our ongoing unwillingness to curtail the, you know, a neoliberal capitalist model of infinite extraction. So as long as we're just out there pushing, uh, grinding ever further into uh, the rainforests, we're going to kick up these problems for ourselves. So stop doing that. <laughs> how about yourself, Jamie? I'm curious how you would draw the lessons here. Yeah, I mean, since finishing the book in 2019, much of my research interest has turned to the food system and looking at various efforts underway, I guess, at the kind of frontiers of, of ecological food systems thinking to imagine how agriculture might be the solution to some of these problems alongside tackling some of the issues that agriculture is rightly identified with being responsible for and looking at manifestations of the probiotic turn uh, in which I guess various agronomists, scientists and and farmers are trying to manipulate soil microbiome, the uh, microbiome of particular crops, even down to the microbiome of particular ruminant animals, this interest in making cows that don't fart and burp so much so that they can not emit so much methane. And yeah, there's, there's some kind of heartening ways in which a growing awareness of, of climate change is starting to cascade down into agriculture and food systems. And I guess a wider popular understanding that, that um, you know, where we get our food from is central to thinking about things like climate change as well as the emergence of zoonotic disease. And so as hopefully we pass out of the moment of intensity with the pandemic and we come out of the pandemic as almost a portal for rethinking our relationships to the non-human world that there is a possibility to reset some of these dynamics and, and think differently about how how life is managed so this is a, this is a promise in probiotic thinking um, but i guess at the same time there's you know large parts of the world that are only able to think probiotically because we've globalized some of these processes elsewhere, so particularly thinking around rewilding, which by and large has taken place in northern temperate situations, parts of, of Canada and, and North America and, and parts of Europe, uh, where land has been freed up because agriculture has been globalized to the tropics. The kind of question as to whether the net quantity of wildness is increasing in the world, or have we just shuffled it geographically to temperate regions away from tropical regions? Uh, the sort of bigger distributional questions in, in that sense. And if you like, you know, these hotspots or intensities of deforestation, which follow the processes of globalizing agriculture, you know, are very much things that uh, we, when I, when I think of we, I think of, you know, I guess the listeners of this blog, educated people living in uh, urban situations in various parts of the world are sort of complicit with. And it, I guess the, the key thing from a 
from a geographer's perspective is to think about where in the world these networks touch down, how they benefit some at, at the expense of others, and a kind of conditionality to the possibilities of going probiotic, which are codependent on you know some people suffering elsewhere. So just try and stitch those two together and think holistically about how you could improve a lot of humans and non-humans globally and across these different scales. And so I got the feeling that, that the science is there. It's thinking about the trade-offs that seem to be baked into the way in which we're operationalizing some of this systems thinking uh, is, is one of the key challenges uh, that I'm trying to think through in this in this current project at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, I enjoyed very much learning about the activities that, that you've spent your time studying and gone out into the field to recover the detail of these probiotic initiatives. I appreciated overall the practical orientation the the sort of field work mode of of much of your discussion uh, was so informative ultimately i'm a literature scholar and so i mean for me it's the recovery of texts and then the meditation upon the recovered text so there's a lot of in the milieu of gaian discourse there's a lot of relatively forgotten or neglected textual history. And so, but that leads me into a, a more kind of theoretical engagement with the play of ideas. Uh, but I think if you put our two books together, <laughs> you've got a, an amazing one-two punch of uh, guy in potency. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you very much to, to everyone involved in the, in the production of the book at, at the press, to Maggie Sattler for setting up this you know fantastic opportunity to have a conversation with Bruce and Bruce I really hope we get a chance to have this conversation face to face at some point uh, in the future it'd be great to, to continue this discussion I uh, I'd also Jamie uh, I look forward to that opportunity thanks so much working with University of Minnesota Press uh, I think for both of us this is our second book with the press but you guys are the greatest. Uh, you could tell you gave us both opportunity to make very last minute revisions. I, I know we're both really proud to, to be represented by Minnesota. So thanks.